Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Stories. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is El Maestro Mike Mena. Dr. Mike Mena is a Mexican-American researcher and currently an assistant professor at Brooklyn College, CUNY. Mike focuses on the ideological perceptions of race and language in the context of American education. Bienvenido a este episodio, Mike. Hello, hello, and thank you for the invite. I'm always uh, excited to do these uh, public type of uh, services, so awesome. Great. Mike, you grew up in the Rio Grande Valley, uh, not very far from here, from San Antonio, where I am. Tell us about this region and your experience living here. Did you grow up bilingual? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I'll, let me, uh, I'll start with the place and then I'll talk about my language stuff. So I was born in the Rio Grande Valley. I attended Donna High School for those who uh, are familiar with the region. I went to UTRGV. Uh, which is also in the Rio Grande Valley. And for those unfamiliar with the region, it's we're talking about the very, very southern tip of Texas, right next to Mexico, the Texas-Mexico border. <laughs> now, looking back, I didn't appreciate the valley when I lived there. But now being in New York, you realize that the valley is kind of one of the friendliest places in the country, I think. I mean, like people smile at you for no reason. People say hello. People hold doors open. Uh, that is not like New York. You could be laying on the sidewalk and people will just like step right over you and mind their own business. Um, but my hometown experience wasn't uh, too special, I, I, I don't think, um, except that I was the eldest child and also the firstborn son. Um, which if you know anything about the Valley and Mexican-American culture a, a little bit, you know that there's kind of some privileges offered to the firstborn. Uh, often, you know, you're tasked with like extra responsibilities, especially if you're uh, a girl or a woman identifying, mm -hmm. right? But but then when you're marked as, as male, you almost seem to inherit it. Uh, the power of maleness and a lot of times you don't actually get any extra responsibilities but you seem to get more freedoms as mm. a, as a man in mexican-american culture at least in this in this part of the region um eventually i hope we move past those those gender hierarchies um they really need to be uh problematized and then gotten rid of <laughs> um but in this sense i su i suspect my maleness is what afforded me the freedom to move to New York to to get a PhD. Um, now, in terms of language, I think my my story is also similar to a lot of other Valleyites too. So my parents are bilingual, uh, but my mom had really ugly experiences as a Spanish speaker growing up. Um, stuff like, you know, being hit by white teachers for speaking Spanish in class, um, things like that. And my mom really wanted to avoid the that possibility for for me so for mm -hmm. for better or worse i was raised speaking english um it was a english language household now i can i can comprehend most of what is said and i can stumble through a spanish language conversation but i definitely wouldn't consider myself a confident bilingual person it's it's 
something I I hope at some point I can just really uh, sit down and and kind of recover the language that I know is there. It's just mm. hard for me to produce, especially the speaking part. You know, you get a little nervous and then all the words disappear and you can't remember what the nouns are or the verbs or how to <laughs> conjugate the genders for, for nouns. And, you, you know, so I, I'm still kind of in that. Um, I don't want to say a beginner because, uh, you, you know, a, often a beginner wouldn't understand things like humor or mm. or things like that. So I wouldn't call myself a beginner. I just not so confident of a bilingual person. And, That's uh, interesting. Yeah, you say humor because I was having a conversation um, with some friends about my my daughters are um, uh, bilingual, um, but they're also heritage language you know, learners. So they're not native uh, speakers of Spanish. And, but my mom is, right? And so my mom sometimes um, talks to them and I am, I'm a native Spanish speaker. Uh, And, but I, but I work with heritage language learners, Latinx students all the time. So the way um, sort of I gauge what mm, humor they might understand, you know, based on maybe also a region and a country and and so on. Um, And my mom was uh, sort of sometimes jokes with my, my daughters, but my daughter's don't get it because because they just don't you know they it, mm-hmm. it goes past them right and so I had to tell my mom I'm like you know what like they they understand everything you say but they don't un- but humor is different like you um humor humor in another language mm-hmm. is different so um yeah I don't know if I don't know if someday they will be like very fully bilingual in the sense that they get the humor yeah <laughs> but for right now no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you're getting into very like advanced, subtle linguistic things that you have to listen for. You're getting into the realms of metaphors and things like that and the right. humor. Right. Uh, and that that does require like a super deep knowledge of not only like the the language, the actual language, but like the, the cultural side exactly. of the humor, you know, and put them yeah. together. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yes. Uh, Mike, tell us a little bit about your journey into higher education as a first-gen student. Um, I assume you are a first-generation student. Um, so, well, actually, I am not a first-gen okay. uh, higher ed student, um, but what I am first of in my entire gigantic family is the uh, first person to get a PhD. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what, uh, I so I, I have three master's degrees, and even that could not have prepared me for the experience of being a PhD student. Mm-hmm. Um, now, often our first gen students are, are, you know, basically alone during their higher ed experience, right? Um, but something special about the Valley, um, getting to go to the to the local university of the Valley and uh, UTRGV, um, I really don't think people understand how lucky of an experience that is in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and we just don't realize it because we don't know anything else. But there, I mean, you're surrounded by other folks of Mexican heritage. Uh, we understand the local social rules. We all talk the same. Many of our teachers lived in the Valley. Um, so it has very much a kind of like small town college vibe, but it just so happens your parents live close by. So you right. get that support right from your parents. And on the other on the other hand, you know, uh, coming over here 
to New York, where I was often the only Mexican American in the classroom, I had a really hard time connecting with the with the other students. The the cultural differences it was like a gigantic gulf between me and um, and the other people that that were here. And uh, sure, I knew how to move around a university, right? But the the politics of academia at the PhD level is a whole new thing that I'm still getting used to. And you really got to have a good, good mentor to help you out or good mentors to help you out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that mentor has to be a person of color too, because the stuff that a POC um, experiences in academia is just totally different from experiencing the whiteness of academia as a white person. Mm. You know, so so it's important that we find our people and kind of latch on to to those people that can be mentors to us. And um, I also thought it was just important to uh, keep going on the PhD route because Mexicans and Mexican Americans are probably one of the least represented groups uh, at the PhD level. It, it's absurd how how low our numbers are at at that level. Um, and you know. Uh, a lot of times I got to fault my undergrad college experience for this, uh, UTRGV um, in particular, but the what I find is almost a total failure to motivate students to go after a PhD. Mm. Like it, it is rarely a conversation um, at, UT, at, at that college. Um, I can't remember one time that I spoke about or heard talk about a PhD program. Uh, the entire time I was there, probably having you know 20, 30, 40 different professors. Not once did anybody tell me about uh, what a PhD program was. And 99% of those students do not know PhD programs are not only free, but they give you a salary. Mm-hmm. So when I hear students from the Valley talk about it, uh, they always write it off because of money issues. Mm-hmm. And they say like, oh, I, you know, I don't have the financial means to to get into a to a PhD program. And I'm like, wow, you know, you know, not one faculty member has told them that any half decent PhD program in the United States will mm-hmm. pay you to attend as a student, will put you on salary, mm-hmm. you know, as a as a PhD student. So that that is a serious miseducation that's happening in the Rio Grande Valley. Right. And I hope that changes because I feel like the absence of the conversation to go into the higher realms of higher education, um, that absence is there and probably holding back hundreds, if not thousands of students from pursuing degrees at pursuing advanced graduate degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, yep, yeah, sure, the master's, but also beyond the master's degree as well. Right, right. Yeah, no, the importance of mentors. I, I definitely agree with you. Sometimes I, um, sometimes I think I am an accidental like faculty member. (laughs) And the way that, um, I mean, I love what I do. And, and, and I loved every step that I took to get here. Um, But I didn't always have mentors. And I actually didn't have mentors until I was in my PhD program, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I, so I learned a lot of things late, you know, in, in the game. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and then some things after I finished, you know, my PhD that I'm like, oh, I should have learned that like earlier. Right. And, 
And so there's a lot of things that happen when you are a first gen, um, you know, graduate student um, that I think, like you said, we don't it's unique. It's 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 unique, and and maybe we're more used to um, talking or describing uh, students in undergraduate programs as first gen. But what happens at the graduate level is also very real, and it could be very even more isolating, right? Um, mm. and, and also depending on the institution, when you um, when you're there and you, I mean that 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 imposter syndrome, like it is really um, maybe even. <laughs> doubles right and yeah like triples doubles <laughs> yeah exactly and what am, am I really like should I really be doing this and am I capable right and and all of that and and um so so yeah so I agree um and I and I'm and I am happy to hear some of those discussions um happening a little bit more um in in regards to um um you know, providing services or discussions or cohorts for for, for first generation um, uh, graduate students, uh, PhD students, but also first generation faculty, mm. uh, right? And so here at the institution where I'm at right now, there are several uh, professors that on their email signature uh, have first generation faculty, um, and I think that that's another conversation, another layer where we're here. Um, uh, and what does that mean for us as first generation faculty to be in the space? How do we mentor first generation faculty? You know, to be successful, um, to navigate a lot of things that maybe uh, uh, another faculty member that who's not first gen doesn't have to um, sort of navigate, right? And so I'm glad it, it brings me hope, right? To And I had never thought about that. And I, I don't think I had really considered or think uh, thought about that um, being a first gen faculty uh, member until coming here. I mean, it, this is like... Mike, this is over 20, 10 years after I got my PhD <laughs> that where that I'm thinking, oh yes, I am. And and maybe I don't identify as much. I am, but I'm I don't because I've I have this experience now and I've navigated Bien Oman, um, mm-hmm. you know, the 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 academy. Um, and I've developed you know, grit, resilience, whatever, <laughs> where that, where I am, um, it doesn't feel like new. Right. Uh, so, but I think it's important to, especially when I think about recent, um, PhDs or recently, uh, graduated, uh, and new faculty members coming into in all kinds of institutions, what kind of support are we, are we providing right to to help them be successful to retain them uh to advance them so yeah absolutely and and you know i don't know those i don't know the statistics off the top of my head right but the graduation rate um even in high school for latinos is one of the lowest in in the united states and same thing for undergraduate one of the lowest and master's degree we're getting worse phd almost non-existent representation at that level and i have to suspect that not having the phd latinos that are capable of training future undergrads to go back to 
uh, go teach in the high schools and the public schools or whatever, that is going to prevent a lot of upward mobility for the community. We got to be there at all the levels, Mm -hmm. you know, as as teachers in public schools uh, and as faculty members in in public universities as well. uh, We have to be everywhere to to really kind of right the ship because right right now it's I obviously it's not as bad as it was you know in the past but it can be better and uh, it's going to take a lot of work but I I just really think it's important that we get the we get Latino um Latinos moving um moving the right things in the right places uh politically uh, all the way up and down the academy mm-hmm. and all the way up and down education yes I agree um Mike, you study language and its relationship uh, to um, or the perception of race. How has your own experience of growing up in the borderlands informed your research and pedagogy? And then maybe even thinking about the place that you're at now or where, because you've been in this area, right, for a few years. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Talk to us about that. So in terms of pedagogy, uh, that I... I teach the way that I used to teach high school in the Valley. I, the, oh, I didn't is, know you were a high school teacher. Yeah, yeah. I was a mariachi director, actually, for, for, Seriously? for well, a few years. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that vibe of, well, for one thing, afraid of being boring. That's that's one pedagogical uh, concern I have, right? Um, but then also providing structure in a way that's not um oppressive um right and the way that i i uh developed myself as a teacher was really taking cultural resources and adapting them for the classroom for example i knew that if i wanted students to take me serious i would act like my mom so i would take that kind of attitude of the the authority of a mother figure Right. But I also wanted kids to like me. So I would remember the the rowdy drunk uncle at the barbecue, the Mexican <laughs> uncle at the barbecue. Right. <laughs> Who was always kind of self-deprecating, making jokes about how dumb he is and blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, putting those two cultural resources together, <laughs> I think, really made me a successful teacher in the Valley because I just knew how to provide Mexican-American students a certain kind of personality that they would be drawn to and and respect while at the same time having fun with, right? Mm-hmm. So, that, so that was my teaching persona that's developed 100% in the Valley, right? Um, now, my specialty in language and race, that was definitely emerged from my home experience too, specifically the feelings of Spanish language inadequacy and feeling, you know, less Mexican than the next person or than my friends or whatever. And I always wondered why I didn't feel uh, particularly Mexican growing up. Mm. Um, uh, I'm sure a lot of it has to do with language and English speaking. Um, but perhaps what inspired me most to get into the specialization is when I was given this book titled The Everyday Language of White Racism. Um, And this is where the author talks about racial undertones of of Anglicized Spanish, 
So like words like cerveza and siesta and manana, right? Um, I was always wondering why do people love, why do white people love saying these things and why do I feel weird about it? <laughs> you know, and this was the first book that really analyzed those feelings for me. You know, Donald Trump also uses this mock Spanish words all the time, things like bad hombres, or he likes to say loco a lot, right? Mm -hmm. But you see underneath those phrases, um, what makes them funny is the racial stereotypes. Mm -hmm. If you don't know about the racial stereotypes, then those phrases wouldn't be funny. Like for example, if I say something like, I'm gonna do my work mañana mm -hmm. and drink a cerveza and take a siesta. Right. The only reason that is funny is if you can recall that cartoon of a lazy Mexican taking a nap on a cactus holding a beer can or a bottle of tequila. Right. Mm -hmm. That's why it is funny. That is the racial undertones that are always there. Um, now, without that reference, without that reference to the to the quote unquote lazy Mexican, I doubt those words would be funny at all. I doubt those words would have ever been anglicized ever. You know, but but that racial history is there. And that's what really drew me to this idea of language, uncovering the racial histories underneath language. Um, so that was really that that one book talking about Anglicized Spanish. That was what took me on that journey. And I have not looked back ever since. <laughs> um, so how does that transfer now into this new place that you're at? Is it? Are you finding new ways um, to think about or reflect on those sort of growing up experiences and the new experiences that you're having in a place like New York? Well, what was the the culture shock of moving from Texas to New York, um, particularly in terms of space, right? So like I, I went from owning a, you know, three bedroom, four bedroom home, one two car garage, all that stuff to living in the studio apartment <laughs> that that costs like three times as much for the rent as opposed to a mortgage payment, you know, in Texas. That that was not fun <laughs> at all. But <laughs> but also I moved into a black neighborhood, mm. um, middle class black neighborhood, um, maybe a lower middle class um neighborhood. And the racial difference that I had experienced for the first time was really jarring because coming from the Valley, you kind of just forget that everybody around you is Mexican for the most part. Mm -hmm. Everybody around you understands your sense of humor. Everybody code switches with Spanglish and things like that. And all of those behaviors just weren't really... Uh, understood here in this neighborhood like if I went to the store if I made a joke or whatever it wasn't being read as funny uh people didn't understand my Spanglish right so it it really made me decenter my own experience because to a certain level or on a certain level um every one of us our experience is completely 100 percent uh self-centered um, just on a very basic level, you are the center of your your own universe and everything moves around you. I think when I moved to New York, though, I felt for the first time that I was the one moving and trying to uh, 
strategically live here. I was the one that was being moved around New York as opposed to New York feeling like it was moving around me. <laughs> um, so those kinds of experiences where I really got to decenter myself um, and experiencing the world not in the majority mm-hmm. because because yeah, Latinos are a minority in Texas, but in the Valley, they're the absolute majority, right? right? So living in the majority and then moving to New York and living in an absolute minority, mm-hmm. like like being one of the one or couple Mexican dudes in the black neighborhood, it, that really, y- you have to learn. You have right. to learn a lot of things, right? Because almost everything you experience is new. Right, right. And you know what? Like, so most of my life I lived in the Midwest, right? In Ohio. And um, and then I grew up in Matamoros, so it's a border town, right, Bra- mm. across from Brownsville, Texas. Uh, but I left, I left that city when I was seventeen. So most of my adult adult life has been in other places. So I now I come back to San Antonio, and I certainly um, do not um, identify, I guess, as um, as f- Fronteriza, even though I am, but my experience has been for almost, you know, 30 years elsewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and those years of adulthood, like a, a whole, I'm a whole other person, right? Um, mm-hmm. than, than when I left. And so, um, and uh, something that's unique about the Midwest, or at least the um, Ohio, where I, where I lived is that even though it's a very small number of Latinos compared to, you know, South Texas, for example, mm-hmm. uh, or even New York, um, um, there is a diversity, you know, there is diversity. So I engage with people from, from different places, not just Mexican or Mexican-American, right? And so when, so coming to San Antonio is a new experience because um, the majority is Mexican and Mexican-American, right? And so, um thinking about what that means for me, for my teaching, um, how do I push also my students to sort of see themselves in the curriculum, but also learn mm-hmm. from other Latinx groups um, across, you know, the nation or even Texas, like what does it mean to be Puerto Rican in San Antonio, for example, right, right? Uh, when you have a majority Mexican or Mexican-American. So so those things, and me, myself, like how do, where do I fit here? Some people when I share that I'm, you know, from Matamoros are like, oh, you're from this region, you know, so they sort of place me here. And some people um, uh, would be like, oh, but you don't know about San Antonio. And that's perfect. Like, yes, I don't know. <laughs> I'm learning, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I've been going through this, you know, process of thinking, when would I, when can I claim I'm not in in a rush, but when can I claim to be like from South Texas? Would I ever would I ever be able to say that? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, just thinking, thinking, reconnecting, but also it's a new space Um, as an academic, what that means also for me and for the work that I'm doing. Um, So, yeah. So all of those questions. uh, I mean, it's it's interesting too, right? Yeah. I'm fun. (laughs) Yeah, and and I think that you bring up a really good point about the different kinds of Latinxes or the different experiences of Latinidad, which which before I think I 
thought of very naively that there was some kind of unifying aspect amongst all Latinos. Um, but coming to New York, obviously, I realized that a Mexican-American from South Texas doesn't exactly have a lot in common with, let's say, a Afro-Latino person from Haiti or from the Dominican Republic mm-hmm. or uh, or even Puerto Rican in California. Mm-hmm. Right. My experience is not the same. There is some there. I mean, sure, there are some overlapping uh, things having to do with like discrimination and things like that. But but um, this idea that Latinos are all unified and one gigantic, you know, mass of people that are all, you know, on the same page with each other, mm-hmm. uh, that 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 myth was very much dispelled moving here to New York. That, right. that I will say that. Yeah. When people think about that, right, I always think, well, you know that there is such a thing as Latinos for Trump, right? Yeah, right. That tells you that we are not a unified group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. You describe yourself as a public intellectual and have a very successful YouTube channel. You are indeed an academic YouTuber. Why has this been an important part of your professional development? Yeah, great. And identity. Yeah, great question. I, um, I, I didn't start calling myself that. People, people started calling me that. Um, I actually what, they started, academic YouTuber. Yeah, and academic <laughs> academic influencer is another oh, one. They like. Yeah, I like uh, that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I thought it was so cheesy at the beginning, but but um, when I realized how often my videos are on syllabus or on syllabi rather, um the whenever i i would do a video on lesser known scholars and then see their work come out on syllabi because there is a video on it right i was like wow you know what uh i am not saying that i made it possible for this particular scholar to get more recognition or or whatever but the channel itself does influence Mm-hmm. the production of syllabi in some way. And if I can bring attention to a lesser known scholar, um, and, and I and I really try to um I really try to cover black and brown scholars. Mm-hmm. That that is my my priority. And brown scholars, Latino scholars in particular, um, I if I can elevate their work any way that I can, I will. Mm-hmm. You know. Um but yeah the the YouTube channel itself, uh the the way it started had a lot to do with feeling completely overwhelmed as a PhD student. Mm. Um, as a person from South Texas, I just didn't sound like the academics that were in my New York classes, uh, the, both the students and the faculty. I just, I didn't sound like them. They would use words like, you know, dialectics or hegemony, and or they'll say phrases like the ways in which <laughs> um, like as in the ways in which a hierarchy is established or or whatever, right? And and to me, I just always hated. It. It's just it, it it sounded so dorky and so unnecessary to me. I was just say I, I would I would always ask, why don't you just say the way hierarchy is established instead of the ways in which, right? I I it I always just would cringe whenever I hear. So I really really try not to say that phrase. I do sometimes, but I I try not to. Um, uh, but yeah, so, uh, I mean, all the students and faculty sounded like that and that made understanding the actual 
the content, the material, so difficult. That that jargon, all those unnecessary, what I thought were unnecessary uh, rhetorical flourishes or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then when I looked up stuff on YouTube for for help, all I got was really old white men in lecture halls and suits, uh, poorly recorded, probably on a webcam or, or something, and using all the big words that I already did not understand. It was exactly the same. So I, I didn't understand it in class. And then I went home to YouTube and I didn't understand it on YouTube either. Right. So eventually I said, you know what, I'm going to make my own YouTube videos and I'm not going to use one effing big word. That was like <laughs> the the philosophy that I started the 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 whole channel with. Right. And then after a while, I just got really used to translating academic jargon into regular language, into grocery store language is what I usually call it. Um, and it definitely afforded the possibility of being a better teacher, too, because I can translate really big concepts uh, into regular stuff for for students. And I've said it a million times, if my mom cannot understand my YouTube videos, then I did something wrong. And now I'm, I'm not, uh, so my mom's a registered nurse. She's not, she doesn't have any linguistics training or, or critical race training or anything like that, but she should be able to understand it. Mm -hmm. And so my audience in my head has always been my mom and my high school students that I used to have. I want to be entertaining for them, um, but I also don't want to be condescending. Mm -hmm. And I, and I don't want the my videos to be summaries i i want them to go as deep as possible and work more like reading guides as opposed to summary overviews because i don't really actually summarize anything i usually pick one thing in an article and then go as deep as i can into mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. and i don't actually have to use big words because i have a whole bunch of other uh tools at my disposal i can use pictures and video sound effects hand gestures all of that stuff that is all part of communication. And what I ended up doing was convincing myself that no matter how complex an idea is or how wordy a theory is, it can all be explained without the jargon. Um, so then I wondered, why is the jargon there in the first place? Right. And to me, the answer is, it's easy. It's, it's that all that linguistic expertise is designed to keep regular folks out of PhD programs, out of master's programs to some extent as well. It's designed to keep people like me away from the ivory tower. So if I can help or inspire a few other students or uh, to keep going in higher education to a higher level, always higher and higher, then I think I'll have done my job. And at the same time, if there's a high school student that's watching my videos and has a better, uh, more um, conscious, consciously um, deeper understanding of things like race and language. Um, that is the goal is high school students, undergrads, masters, PhD students. My videos are used in all those grade levels and all of them understand because accessibility is at the center of the YouTube philosophy. Mm -hmm. So, so, and plus, you know, the, in terms of career, uh, I think that my name got put out there very quickly because when I started, I was the only one doing it at the time. Mm 
So in, in that sense, it kind of really gave me a head start in comparison to a whole lot of other. I don't know very many faculty members that have YouTube channels. Off the top of my head, I can't think of one. So that so just the fact that I can't think of one means that there's it, it's a it's rare. I'm sure there are many. I just don't know of any off the top of my yeah, head. Yes. And I want to say, I want somebody to do literary theory the way, that, you know, as a YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I remember, and and I agree with you that some some of the, the language um, mm, often made me feel like it wasn't a place for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, I do not understand what I just read. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I remember having those moments in grad school. Um, and then I and I um and I want to say that I continue I I still like when I when I think about the readings that I did or the theories that I read, um uh, you know, as a maybe more seasoned scholar now, I still think that that's so unnecessary. Like I go back and I be I, I would be honest, some of the stuff I still don't understand what exactly the author was trying to say. And I think that that's a failure on the author and not me as a reader, but I have sort of the capacity to say that now, right? As an experienced scholar to say, if you as an author make it difficult for audiences to understand your point, are you really successful? Um, and this is from an educator's perspective, right? Uh, the answer for somebody that's uh, sort of canonical or, you know, things in terms of hierarchy uh, would say, yes, you know, because we're keeping, you know, because only the smart people can read this or whatever. And I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm saying this sarcastically right now. Um, <laughs> the, but as an educator, I'm like, no, like you, that that's a big failure. Like we, you have not, um, taught and taught us anything, right? Um, and and so um, I I agree, and I and I wish, and I hope, you know, maybe you you're an inspiration to to those struggling struggling with literary theory uh, to come and start doing the work that you do is so important, and and I think, and I agree with you with. Um, especially right our discussion earlier about first gen graduate students that. Um, haven't had that exposure to certain language and and then you've come into classrooms where where instructors professors are unwilling to unpack things for you um or provide you with the resources so that you can um unpack things right um it's um it's so important mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and, and i i think when it when it like when it comes to PhD programs, there there's the assumption that uh there is a foundation there already, and uh, which is just kind of not the case a lot of times. Um, for example, in my anthropology program, you had people from you know that were architects mm-hmm. before, or um one of them was uh an engineer. Right. So they don't have the anthropology background, but when they got there, it was just kind of assumed that they did. The same thing with me. I I didn't have an explicit anthropology background. I had an ethnomusicology degree, which is kind of the anthropology of music, but is that but it's a very specialized subgenre of anthropology. So I didn't have the quote unquote mm-hmm. foundation, right? I didn't have 
I didn't know the, all the French words that would come out of all of these old, you know, old anthropological theories that I guess I was supposed to know before getting there. Right. But what what in the world with would a Mexican kid go? Why would a Mexican kid care about French words? That That's that was my take. Right. I was like, I'm not ever going to say these stupid French words, just like I'm not going to say the ways in which I just don't <laughs> I don't like it. And and I can imagine my friends at home making fun of me for using it, <laughs> you know, uh, it, the, like as they cannot a, drink know. every time you say the ways in which. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that would, that would probably like kill most academics. <laughs> they have alcohol poisoning all over the country. <laughs> oh, yeah. So yeah, the, the linguistic hierarchies is definitely just a concern all, all the way around. Mm -hmm. uh, for mm -hmm. me because that is um that's one way that latinos especially maybe persons that uh english isn't their first language uh that linguistic barrier is is very real mm -hmm. to 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 a lot of Latinos in the United States. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Mike, you we talked briefly about you living in New York, um, now in uh, sort of being engaged in a neighborhood or in a city uh, that is very much multilingual, multiracial, and sort of finding your way around that, right? And um, so can you just elaborate a little bit more about the ways... <laughs> I was going to say the way yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, can't, we can't ever say it. <laughs> this is promise the we'll never say that. <laughs> the way's that. There. See all these extra words You're trying to throw me off. <laughs> the ways that your identity has been um, transformed, challenged, enhanced uh, by this experiences outside of Texas. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, so, so it, it's, it's interesting because I think at some level, the topic that I chose, the specializing in language and race was kind of an effort to understand myself mm -hmm. uh, and my identity in American society. I think now I'm more concerned with society and less so anything about myself. Mm -hmm. uh, especially bilingual education in schools. Um, but even more than that, I became very concerned with how white supremacy operates through persons of color. So not white people. I don't I don't like talking about white white identifying people. There's plenty of research on that already. <laughs> um, but, what I wanted to focus on was how do we as non-white populations help spread white supremacist beliefs? Uh, and you, for example, one uh, a moment here in New York that really had some kind of effect on me was when I heard a, it, uh, it was a, a little kid, must have been under 10 years old or so, I interpreted or I read them as being Black American. And I heard that kids say, oh, that his classmate only speaks Mexican, mm. right? And that was really revealing to, to, to me, that switch from instead of speaking Spanish, he speaks Mexican, right? So the, the racial connotations was, um, was very explicit in that moment. So a lot of my work uh, concerns our own complicity as complicity 
as persons of color um, in the production of those hierarchies that stem from a white supremacist history. You know, I, earlier I was talking about the gender hierarchies in the valley where boys are told to follow their dreams while girls are often more regulated to social domestic roles. I mean, it's better now than it was. Um, but for example, the the way my parents taught or uh, treated me in comparison to my sister, you know, both me and my sister were musicians, very accomplished musicians at that. I was told, follow your dreams, Mike, go be a music teacher, you know, despite how maybe not stable uh, those jobs would be while my sister was told, you need to be a nurse, mm. even though she has surpassed my talent musically in every single way that I can think of. She is the superior musician, but I was told to follow my dreams. She was told to be a nurse. You know, so that's so those kinds of uh, aspects of Mexican culture, um, us as Mexican Americans, we are not obligated to be proud of those things. We can change them, and we should. Mm-hmm. You know the the also the anti gayness that sentiment in South Texas was alive, very real. It's probably. I, I've joked around, joked around before saying that it's like the straightest place that I think I've ever lived in comparison to like New York, for example, where where um, the queer community is very visible. You got, you know, uh, guys holding hands in the streets, really not anything. It's not even anything to look twice at. Right. But if that kind of stuff happens in the valley, uh, it a lot of times it doesn't have a a, a nice a nice ending, uh, and I've seen it a million times. I saw it a million times growing up, and I've even seen it recently where there's there's that protection of Mexican masculinity is a real problem in in South Texas in the Mexican American community of South Texas, and I'm only gonna, I'm only going to speak of them because, like I said, I feel like I don't I wouldn't know how to characterize Mexican Americans and even San Antonio or Austin or whatever, right? To, to me, that's going to be a, a difference. There's going to be differences there. Um, but um, yeah, in terms of just becoming interested in things like queer theory, critical race theory, um, questioning the the very basic common, supposedly commonsensical beliefs uh, of Mexicanness in the Valley. It really, I had to question all of that stuff once I came to New York because it just wasn't understood as the way things are here in New York. Mm-hmm. While a lot of that stuff we take for granted in the Valley because we've been there our whole lives, we grew up with it. That's the way things are. Um, when they don't actually have to be that way, we can change a lot of these things. And we don't have to be proud of everything in Mexican mm-hmm. Uh, culture or You're right. we don't you know some of the things need to need need to change quick fast right, right. and in a hurry I mean, and I mean this could be a, a whole different or another podcast but um you know I think about that too just in in the language right in Spanish I'm introducing um and, and it's funny to see how the generations are more accepting to sort of this change than others right um so in one of my classes I was 
um, I made, you know, explicit that we were going to try to use um, inclusive language as far as like, um, you know, they use instead of in Spanish, instead of the O or A to um, identify gender, uh, we were going to use the E, the E um, when appropriate. Um, and I, you know, and I'm very honest about saying this is, um, as a native Spanish speaker, um, this, um, is not easy for me in terms of speaking it. Like I can write it because I'm very conscious, right? You, you see it and you change and it's very easy to do, but when you speak it, um, you're so used to defaulting to OOA, mm -hmm. uh, that I, you might hear me. Uh, repeating myself just to get that e in there, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but that's okay because we need practice, and that's how we, you know, that's how we um, sort of get better, right? Um, and so, in doing that, um, I was using, you know, otros, nosotros, um, uh, instead of nosotros, nosotros, mm -hmm. etc. And um, there was one um, student uh, from Latin America. Um, you know, who has lived here in the States for, for a long time, but was challenging me. She's like, I've never heard of that. What is that? You know, it's like, that's, that's a, that's a spelling mistake. Right? <laughs> and so, um, you know, I'm explaining to her and I don't know if I convinced her, right. Uh, why I was doing that and, and the reason for inclusive language. And, but I, I thought, well, first of all, we, we all need to hear that, uh, whether you choose to use it or not, at least. Um, the next time, the next time she sees it, she knows what that means, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's a process, right? Like I, I don't think um, so. While I can, and there were um, sort of younger students, right, in the class, um, because I forgot to say that she's an older, like older student, um, <clears throat> and the younger generations were like, oh. Yes, like that's very easy for them. That's like you don't have to explain it. <laughs> I can just say, oh, this is the gender inclusive version of it. That's it. Like I don't have to say, I don't have to go into detail about that, right? Um, and so I but I wouldn't use that language without having to explain that to my mom, right? Yeah. Uh so right. it, and I can explain and I like she could understand and you know, but um, but that would certainly raise the question. Like if I tried to say nosotres or otres, she'd be like, what are you saying? <laughs> you know, she would be asking me that. And so I do think that um, there's a way for us to challenge that, to make it um, part of our language. And, and the only way to do that is to actually practice it, right? And, mm -hmm. and to be, yeah, to like like you said, I do like what you said. We don't have to be proud of everything, and and that's one of the things that when you when you move away from your region, your country, uh, in my case, right, um, to a, you know, I went from Matamoros to Ohio, very different, right? Wow, <laughs> and, <laughs> that's a culture shock, <laughs> right? Right, but um, you also start thinking what 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 parts of my culture, um do I really value or, or are they really are good things to be proud of? And what things can I remove, right? What mm -hmm. practices can I remove that are um, uh, oppressive to other groups, to other people? Uh, what, what's in my vocabulary and, you know, that I, that I, that I use in Spanish that has this historical um, stereotypical connotation of other groups of other people, women, mm -hmm. right. Or, or indigenous 
peoples um, that I remove from from that. I don't have to be proud of everything in Spanish because right. some of the language has been used to oppress others, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so I do. I think that's a great reflection, especially now coming into the new year, right? Uh, sort of if we if we ever make resolutions, as the resolution to challenge and adopt. So challenge cultural practices, language practices that are oppressive to to people or groups, mm-hmm. um, and adopt ones that are not right that are that are more inclusive and practice and be gentle with yourself when you when you don't get it right away, but you know, but continue to try. Uh, so that's that's my two cents on that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That, developing that uh that critical consciousness, mm-hmm. uh, right? Um. And and it's it's even like words like um, Latinx, mm-hmm. right? So so I kind of I I have the same difficulty when I'm speaking as well because Latin Latinx just doesn't uh, feel like me, mm-hmm. just like in the same way that Chicano doesn't feel like me. And then it's just like yes, technically I could fall into these categories, right? But um, you know when you when you grow up, I, actually I don't even identify with Latino that much. I either like to me, I've always been Mexican American or I usually Chicano? just say I'm Mexican. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that that's the way that I've always identified, right? Um so it definitely did take me a while to start verbally uh ver- verbally using words like Latinx. Because mm-hmm. it it's it's hard, especially when you don't have that critical conscience underneath as to why somebody might use uh, this word instead of that word, right? And and exactly. and some of these beliefs are so ingrained in us mm-hmm. that it, it's really hard to it's really hard to change people's mind. But on the other hand, if the person is younger from the new new generation, you know, oh, okay, Latinx, yeah, that, that sounds cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, g- gender gender inclusive, cool, yeah. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I'm having not struggle, but um, thinking about here in San, a place like Texas or San Antonio, you know, um, how there is still a preference for the word Hispanic, and um, and mm. that's so different than the Midwest, where you hardly ever uh, hear that. You know. Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. Uh, th- when I started doing my research in the Valley, the first question that I asked, which I thought was going to be simple, it was, I, I was treating it like an icebreaker type of question, right? I, I asked them, how do you identify? And they would look at me like, what? It's like, well, well how do you racially identify? And I would get these blank stares <laughs> like, well, Mexican's not a race. Um, and then they're like, well, how about, and then I would say, how about what, what category, what ethno-racial category do you identify? I would still get these blank stares like, hmm. What I realized was people in the Valley, a lot of people in the Valley have never been asked that question because they're all, because everybody's Mexican. So everybody will just assume like, hey, well, you know, everybody's Mexican. But I did not get one answer that was the same. And mm-hmm. I'm talking like these are like 30, 40 different people that I interviewed everybody had a different answer different reasons for like maybe picking chicano or chicana or tejano um or hispanic you know one person even said well white because on the census i identified as white right so 
the the identity categories they're just they're always adapting molding they're always in plays uh in play next year we might have a different word for latinx or latine or i've heard latinu also is another one with the with the u or uh or something to to me i think it's more important to focus on the critical consciousness underneath those words than than making sure i like correct people when they use the word latino or whatever you know yeah. it's it's a uh, it's it, it's really complex and that's that's the that to me that's the important part is the is the underneath the the word itself the actual linguistic term um that's just kind of how we get there and how we imagine the future could be you know mm -hmm. so the word is also important but the critical consciousness is to me the most important mike what projects or initiatives are you hoping to to work on this year 2023 Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, so the YouTube channel will continue as it has, because that's a very, you know, important part of my career. Um, I have a couple of articles in the works, one that I'm focusing on something I'm calling uh, soft linguistic terrorism. And then another another article I'm working on that focus on focuses on something I'm calling semiotic whitening. So these are all these are two theory papers that I'm really trying to hopefully publish by the end of this year, but you know, it takes a long time to get <laughs> yeah. get articles published, right? It's, sometimes it takes like a year, two years, three years yeah. to do it. Um, and then for the immediate future, I mean, I'm, I'm working at Brooklyn College. It's been super fun. I can imagine myself being there for, for quite a while. Maybe someday I'd like to work in the, uh, back home in the Valley, UTRGV. That, that was part of my original plan was wanting to come home uh, to my people, help teach my people too or learn with my people rather. Um, so there's that maybe, maybe someday, but you know, for this year, I'll, I'm speaking at tons of events uh, as keynote speaker, um, which is utterly absurd for a junior scholar uh, to get these kinds of like prestigious uh, opportunities. Uh, I was invited to do a Ted talk, um, like the, the real one that they, that yeah gets like zillions of views on YouTube. Um, it just so happened that I was keynoting the exact same day as the TED Talk that they wanted me to do. So I had to say no, but just the fact that TED Talk actually reached out to me, I was just like kind of so shocked. But Is this academic influencer status? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, must, it must be it, right? Uh, so yeah, the so the YouTube channel is, is just really put my name out there as a public intellectual, but you know, no matter what, I just always try to remember that in my, you know, in my heart of hearts, I'm still just a nerdy Mexican boy from South Texas, no matter where I'm at or who I'm speaking to. That's, that's who I am. I'm trying to hold on to that as long as possible. Hopefully I'll hold on to it my whole life. Well, if not, we'll send you, you know, sound clips of this episode to remind you of it. Yeah, there you go, right? Keep yeah. me in check. <laughs> the receipt. Send me the receipt. <laughs> right, right, right. Mike, um, gracias por esta conversación. Absolutely. It was super fun. Super fun. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Bye, everyone.